Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined today, as every week, by Simon Elliott, head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. As it happens, this week, as we said a couple of weeks ago, this is the first anniversary of this podcast. We started producing it virtually a year ago, just after the market hit its lows during the pandemic crisis. And what a year it's been. But let's start off, before we perhaps look back on that, uh, let's start off, Simon, by talking, as always, about what happened this week. It's been a short week, four days only, because of the Easter holidays. But what's been the story? Yes, it's not been a bad week, actually, for the investment company sector. So following on from two consecutive negative weeks, uh, and the investment company sector ended up in positive territory, up about 1.6%. And that represented an outperformance of the FTSE All Share, so the wider UK market, uh, which was up about 0.2%. Uh, the sector average discount narrowed in a little bit, probably started the week about 37 and ended up nearer to 3%. Uh, and just to remind people, um, it started the year at 2%. So we have seen a little bit of discounts widening out and it's averaged, in fact, 3.2% so far this year. But yeah, as always, very interesting week in the marketplace. A lot of talk about stimulus-fueled rebounds, A lot of chat about Joe Biden's uh, latest spending plans, his infrastructure plans, but also, uh, and possibly more importantly, there's signs of strength in the US economy. Um, So putting some of those COVID-19 lockdown problems, uh, particularly in Europe, into context. Okay, so let's start off by looking at uh, some corporate activity this week. And there is a bit of a theme around this week, which is in the sense of we've heard quite a lot from the hedge fund sector this week. It's not a sector we talk about a lot because it's no longer such a large sector as it once was a few few years ago. But let's start off by talking about BH Macro, where uh, we heard the results of the, the fee change vote this week for the second Brevin Howard Fund. And um, I think I might get my bragging rights here back, uh, Simon. Well, absolutely. A couple of weeks ago, you predicted that 80% of shareholders would be in favour of a uh, increase in the management fee. And there was perhaps a little bit of scoffing, a little bit of mocking when it turned out to be, I think, nearer to 60% last week in the case of BH Global. But in fact, you were right in terms of BH Macro, who announced this week that shareholders approved the proposed changes to the management uh, agreement and just short of 83% of votes in favour of those changes, which will become effective from the 1st of July. About 62% of the shares in issue were voted. Right. So uh, I'll bank that one because there won't be many more like that, I'm sure. But I mean, it's strange, is it not, in a way? Only 60% of the people bothered to vote on this issue. I mean, that's I guess that's fairly typical for this kind of turnout. But you think when there's something like fees involved, you might get a bigger turnout? Does it suggest that uh, these are just people who just aren't interested? Or, I mean, what's, what, what do you think? Yeah, uh, shareholder turnout on these votes can vary quite a lot. And it often depends on the nature of the shareholder base. So invariably, where, where there's a, a concentrated institutional shareholder base in a very contentious issue, then you see a high level of turnout. Uh, but equally, at the other end of the spectrum, where you have a very high retail ownership, um, and it can be quite difficult for retail shareholders to vote, uh, particularly if they hold their uh, shareholdings through platforms, then turnouts can be quite low, particularly if it's just ongoing business. Uh, so you see AGMs where, where very low turnout, uh, unfortunately, in many cases. BH Macro is obviously somewhere in between. I think 62% doesn't seem to be too bad a result. And obviously, 80 plus percent of uh, shareholders in favour 
as we've discussed before, I think this was always likely to get nodded through. So I would say this is probably at the higher end of the spectrum, to be honest. Yeah, and this is why uh, investors or shareholders, uh, so often they do actually rely on the board to do their work for them and uh, you know, to, to do the hard negotiating if that's required. I did notice the chairman of BH Macro, who's quite a well-known figure in the investment trust world or in the investment world in the city, uh, he managed to sort of strike the right tone, I think, between making clear that he wasn't entirely happy about all this, but saying that he had to uh, bow to the wishes of the majority. So at least uh, that board has been at least earning its money, even if the uh, the result may be one they're not entirely happy with. But uh, Rayal Politique may have won the day there. Let's talk about another hedge fund, uh, something called Third Point Investors. They made an announcement this week. I don't think it's hugely important, but it's uh, interesting because it raises a specific issue. Can you tell us what they said and and why that might be of interest? Yeah, so basically Third Point Investors announced a strategic review. Basically, they're looking to bring in some measures that will improve the fund's performance and also narrow its discount. So there's a couple of bits and pieces to this. They're going to introduce uh, two conditional tender offers uh, at 25% of the share capital at a 2% discount and they will be triggered if on a six-month period to either the 31st of March 2024 or the 31st of March 2027, the discount is wider than 10% or 7.5% respectively. And that 7.5% is the direction of travel in terms of where they want to get their discount to. Um, They're also going to adopt potential gearing up to 15%, and they're looking to put a mechanism in place that will allow shareholders to exchange shares directly into the master fund. So this actually is a feeder fund into Third Point Offshore Fund, and it's run by a chap called Daniel Loeb, who's quite a well-known US-based hedge fund manager, quite a colourful character. But yes, it's all about uh, improving performance and narrowing the discount. Yes, well, we'll see uh, when we come on a bit later to the results. There's the other, the big boy, if you like, in the the hedge fund sector, which is uh, Pershing Square Holdings, has also been... uh, talking about the need for uh, narrowing its discount and so on. We might talk about why that is an issue when we get there. Let's move on, though, and talk about um, Strategic Equity Capital, which is another trust which has been um, having a bit of an issue to deal with because of some dissident shareholders in this case. Um, What was the outcome there of that particular issue, which you can remind us about? Sure. So basically, you're absolutely right. There were were two shareholders who requisitioned a general meeting, uh, and there was a continuation vote put to that meeting. Uh, In the event, shareholders voted in favour of continuation, so 82% of the shares voted uh, were in favour. However, it's worth noting that 8.4 million shares, so 18% in that particular case, were against, so uh, not an insignificant amount. And in fact, the chairman of the investment company acknowledged that shareholders uh, were clearly frustrated with the wide discount on this particular investment trust and stated that the board is looking at ways to address this. So although it is a victory for the board, a victory for the investment manager, this this investment trust continues in business, there's clearly uh, issues to be uh, grappled with here. So as I recall, the two shareholders who wrote this letter making clear their dissatisfaction and calling for some change, uh, they had about 7% of the shares, I think. So they managed to get perhaps another 10% or so to go along with them. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think the, the maths works out something like that. Ian Armitage and Jonathan Morgan were the two dissenting shareholders who own quite a few shares between them. But clearly there are other shareholders on the register uh, that share their views. And one suspects as well that there will be, even amongst the wider body of, of the shareholders who have probably voted in favour of continuation, there'll be those minded 
to encourage the board in its attempts to narrow the discount. It's worth noting that um, SEC or Strategic Equity Capital has seen a change of its investment manager in recent times. Um, that's been accompanied with a, a change in emphasis in terms of its approach. But interestingly enough, in the first quarter of this year, so in the three months to the end of March, it's actually performed quite well. So it's up 16% in share price total return terms or 13% in NAV total return terms. And in fact, it finds itself in in one of the uh, top 20 best performing investment companies so far this year. So one suspects that was probably helpful as well in terms of ensuring that they came through this vote unscathed. Uh, what is the discount and how is it, uh, has it moved at all since this all started and the, and the better performance? Yeah, so the discount's about 15% or so at the moment, and that compares with a, a, an average of 19% over the previous 12 months. So that's positive. It's, it, it has narrowed in. However, the weighted average discount in the UK small cap sector in which it finds itself is, is near to about 5%. So it's clearly on a much wider discount than any number of its peers. Okay, so uh, let's move on. We couldn't let an anniversary edition pass without talking about Hypnosis Songs Fund, S-O-N-G, Song Hypnosis. We've talked a lot about that, uh, perhaps to a greater extent than is warranted by uh, what it's done, but it's a very interesting one. Uh, so what do they say this week and what, do, what on earth does that mean? Well, uh, it's fair to say it's one of its less colourful announcements. It's normally at the stage that we discuss its latest acquisitions and the merit of the particular recording artist whose uh, music rights they've grabbed hold of. In this particular case, they announced that they are looking to move onshore. So basically, they applied to the authorities for approval of the fund as an investment trust company. So at the moment, it's a Guernsey domiciled uh, investment company, uh, which is not, to be fair, unusual in the investment company sector. Uh, there's a large number of companies that find themselves in the same situation, but they're looking to move onshore. That conversion uh, took effect from the 1st of April, uh, so the end of last week, obviously not fooling around with this one, if you pardon the pun. But uh, the reason for moving onshore was basically this, just it was to mitigate the recently in- increased scope of Guernsey's economic substance rules which sounds pretty horrific, but this is basically, without going into too much detail, it's to do with where you generate your profits and they have to be consummate with their economic activities uh, and substantial economic presence. So they've they've suggested this is the reason for their move. So they come on short. Basically, it doesn't really make one suspects too much difference to shareholders. Uh, They will come on short, but they'll be exempt UK tax on their chargeable gains. They will be liable for corporation tax on income but essentially they will be exempt if the dividend income is in one of any number of exempt uh, classes, which is the case for most uh, onshore investment trust companies. Right. So as you say, there are a number of uh, investment trusts which operate in uh, listed in Guernsey or under Guernsey regulatory rules, but um, also traded in London. So do you think there'll be others doing this if this is the real reason is the increased scope of Guernsey's economic substance rules? Do you think that's going to be a, a trend we're going to see with investment trusts or not? It's a good question. I, I think we'll have to wait and see. I mean, at one stage, uh, there were an awful lot of investment companies either launching in the Channel Lines, so Guernsey and Jersey, to be fair. And we did see a number of investment trusts moving offshore to effectively become more tax efficient vehicles. That's a trend that's probably slowed in recent years. Uh, most investment trust launches have been onshore. I think that's probably right over the last three or four years. But um, to see people move back onshore. We've seen it in the property sector because of the change in the REIT rules. We've seen a number of the 
Channel Island uh, investment companies, property investment companies come back on shore. Um, and it'd be interesting to see if there is a trend here, but perhaps one to watch. Indeed. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some results. We'll start off with Mercantile Investment Trust, MRC. That's Mercantile. They've had their annual results, uh, but for the year to 31st of January, not the, not the 31st of December. How did they do last year? Yeah, they were down a little bit behind their benchmark, actually. So they had an NAV total return that was down about 6%, uh, and the benchmark was down about 5%. In share price terms, the total return was negative, uh, about 8 8.5%. So basically, the, the underperformance at an NAV level was a result of they lagged that rapid recovery that we saw in the last few months of 2020. But saying that, they had a, a number of winners in the portfolio. So companies like Games Workshop, Computer Center, SoftCAD and B&M European Value Retail did very well for them. Obviously, they had a few that did less well, as one might suspect, particularly the kind of travel and leisure sectors. Their revenue per share was down 46% to 4.1p in the year. But actually, their total dividend that they paid out to their shareholders uh, came in at 6.7p. So that was actually up 1.5%. And obviously, they used uh, revenue reserves in order to do that. But perhaps looking forward, uh, one of the most interesting aspects of these results is the manager's views on the prospects for the UK. And uh, they're very optimistic. So this is Guy Anderson and Anthony Lynch. They've been responsible for this investment trust for a number of years. Um, and they're, they're kind of putting their money where their mouth is in as much as the, the gearing level uh, was about 12% or so at the end of January. And they noted that's the highest level it's been since 2012. So they're talking about arguably the greatest upside uh, in G7. So they're very much looking for this bounce back trade. And how have they performed this year? Obviously, we know that uh, you know small and mid-cap stocks have done reasonably well in the recovery. How have they been performing over the last few weeks, the first quarter? Yeah, so in the three months to April 1st, they're up 9% in NAV total return terms. And that compares, in fact, they're broadly in line with their, with their benchmark, which is the FTSE All Share X, the FTSE 100. So it's worth noting, actually, with Mercantile Investment Trust, it's, it's invests in the UK, UK equities, um, but they tend not to play in the, in the FTSE 100. So they'll only have uh, portfolio holdings in the FTSE 100 if they perform very strongly and got promoted in. So they're, they're hunting ground. Uh, is the mid cap, uh, but they've also got some small cap names in there. So a good barometer on, on what's really going on in, in terms of UK PLC. Well, let's hope their confidence is justified. We'll move on and talk about Henderson High Income, HHI, Henderson High Income. Uh, they've had an annual report out. How did they do? Different kind of animal? Yes, a different kind of animal. And they have their annual results to the end of December. Again, a bit of a tricky period for this one. Their NEV total return was down about 11%, and that compared with a fall of 6% for their benchmark. Uh, it's worth saying, actually, that the benchmark reflects the fact that this is a hybrid investment trust. It has equities and bonds. So the benchmark is 80% the FTSE All Share, 20% uh, relevant bond index. So they lagged that in last year. In share price terms, they were down about 18% as they moved from a premium rating to a discount of about 6 or 7%. So a tougher time for uh, this particular investment trust. The revenue per share was down from 10.6p to 8.6p, but actually they increased their full year dividend up from 9.8 to 9.9p. So they used revenue reserves uh, in order to do that. 
Uh, and in fact, their, their gearing has been increased as well a little bit. So it's now about 23%. And it's worth noting, actually, that the gearing was the kind of swing factor in their in their performance uh, in the year, uh, and the fact they were a bit underweight bonds. So if you look at actually how they did in terms of their equity selection and their bond selection, they're right in line with the, the respective uh, parts of their index. It is interesting. We have been hearing quite a lot of investment trusts uh, saying that they've been using gearing um, in this uh, latest period. So hoping to take advantage of the fact that they can use gearing, unlike most uh, open-ended funds. It's easier to do that as an investment trust. And uh, obviously, it does work when the markets are going up. It's very effective at adding a little bit of extra return. But of course, it adds to the risk as well. Let's move on and talk about some more annual results. Let's start off with BlackRock Latin American, which obviously um, is, again, a completely different animal. A nice uh, verdict on how wide and varied the universe is. How did they do? So they had their annual results up again to the end of December. Um, their NEV total return was down about 14.5%. That was a slight underperformance of their benchmark, which was down 14%. In share price times, they actually did a little bit better, actually. They were down 9% as their discount narrowed from 12% to 7%. Um, the revenue per share uh, was down about 18%, and their full-year dividend uh, was actually lower uh, year-on-year as well. But as you say, it's a, it's an interesting story, uh, Latin America. This particular investment trust has got a large weight into Brazil, probably about 69% or so. Uh, Mexico's 27%, uh, and then they've got uh, smaller weightings to Chile and Argentina. But, uh, you know, still the managers there, Ed Kasami and Sam Vecht, I think it's still bullish on the prospects for Latin America. And obviously, a lot of talk about uh, what's going on there in terms of COVID-19, but also uh, the possibility of commodities being, I think, a following wind and obviously a pickup in consumption as we go through 2021. Yes, commodities obviously have been performing very strongly and uh, Brazil has a remarkable uh, variety of natural resources, which is uh, unlike almost any other country for the sheer breadth and scale. I know I have some personal experience of that, but the politics of Latin America is always uh, rather tricky and tends to act as a drag over time. Let's hope that's not the case here. Uh, let's move on and talk about Fundsmith Emerging Equities. FEET, Fundsmith Emerging Equities, also had their annual results for the same period. That's right. And they were up. Had a decent set of results, actually. NAV had a return of 21% in the year, and that compared with a rise of 14% for their benchmark, which is the MSCI Emerging and Frontier Markets Index. In share price terms, even stronger, actually. Their share price total return was up 29%. As the discount narrowed from 9% to 3%. So what happened here? Well, their performance was assisted by being underweight, frontier markets, and also reducing the weighting to uh, listed multinational subsidiaries. And also they benefited from a higher weighting to healthcare and technology sectors. As the name would suggest, this is part of the, the Fund Smith empire. Um, it shares some of the same traits uh, as some of its sister funds. It's a very concentrated portfolio. And in fact, one of the things they're looking to do is decrease the number of holdings uh, that they're allowed to hold. So at the moment, they have to hold between 35 and 55 holdings. They're at the bottom end of that range, 36 at the moment. But they're looking for shareholder permission to reduce that so they can hold as few as 25. So it really is a very concentrated portfolio, a real focus on quality companies, uh, over 50% in consumer staples. Healthcare, as mentioned, is a big waiting, but 43% in India. 
uh, at the moment. So this is a very different vehicle from anything else that you might find in terms of the emerging markets world. China is only a 16% weighting, which again represents a significant underweight. Yes, I think it's fair to say, well, certainly in comparison with the other Fundsmith funds, including Smithson, the investment trust that was started by Fundsmith two or three years ago, uh, that, that the Emerging Markets uh, Trust has performed pretty poorly, frankly, over over the last few years. The formula that works for Fundsmith elsewhere doesn't seem to work so well in Emerging Markets. And in particular, I think it was interesting that their initial policy was very much focused on the uh, local subsidiaries of big multinationals, which were performing well in the developed world, but never seemed to perform quite so well in countries such as Nigeria or Indonesia and so on, which is where they were uh, quite heavily concentrated when they started, as I recall. So interesting, they are kind of changing the strategy there and obviously hoping, I think, to improve the performance. Perhaps you could just remind us how they have performed compared to the peer group. And um, you mentioned the discount, so we know what's been happening there, but that has come in quite a long way as well, I think. Yeah, so just on that, the discount at the moment is probably about 7 7.5%, and that compares to an average of 10% over the previous 12 months. But you're right, uh, in terms of its performance numbers, so in NAV total return terms, it's up about 46% over the previous five years, uh, and that compares with the average, weighted average for its peer group of um, something like 86%. So it is a laggard. Um, it's worth noting that you've got funds in there such as uh, Templeton Emerging Markets up 135% over that period and JP Morgan Emerging Markets, which is up 121%. And really, the decision to be underweight China and probably underweight technology as well has been uh, a key factor there, one would suspect. Indeed. Let's move on to Fidelity Japan Trust, FJV, one of the family of Fidelity Investment Trusts. And uh, they've had annual results for 2020 as well. They have. Uh, and again, another strong set of results here. The NEV total returns up about 25% last year, and that compared with about 9.5% for their uh, reference index. In share price terms, uh, also up 25%. So basically the story here, after a weak first quarter, which I think uh, everyone had a weak first quarter, frankly, they saw a strong recovery, and that was a result of some of their core positions in medical technology, internet services, and factory automation companies. The portfolio is overweight technology, and they have a focus on globally competitive companies. Also uh, quite geared as well, this one, 24% geared at the end of 2020. And it's worth noting as well that this investment trust had an unquoted holding, so uh, um, an investment in a private company called Coconala, I think I pronounced that correctly, which actually listed on the 19th of March this year, so only a few weeks ago. And in the report, they noted that the valuation as at the end of 2020 uh, was considerably lower. And so that IPO value would have been equivalent to an increase of 3.6% to their year-end NAV. That will be reflected in the NAV going forward. But clearly, that's been a successful investment for them as well. Yes, I mean, looking at the Japanese sectors, it is interesting because it's obviously always seen as quite a defensive market. And more recently, it hasn't done very well in the most recent uh, weeks and months compared to the rest of the developed markets. But uh, the five-year track record of the big trusts in the sector has been pretty impressive. I've just been looking at the numbers. They're well over uh, well over 130% in most cases. And uh, it's done very well as a sector, has it not? No, it really has. It really has. And I think that there's a few things going on here. I think if you look at some of the names in the Japanese sector, so obviously we're talking about Fidelity Japan, but also the JP Morgan Fund as well and the Bailey Gifford Fund, um, they have quite a clear growth-orientated investment strategies. And that's clearly 
benefited them. So um, their performance records, all three of those funds are very strong over a five-year period. Those that have perhaps got more value bent uh, have probably uh, been less impressive. And Schroeder Japan Growth and Aberdeen Japan would probably fit into that category. But yeah, the five-year performance records uh, of that sector is, is strong. Let's compare that then to uh, Nippon Active Value, NAVF, Nippon Active Value, which is a, a recently launched vehicle, which is trying to do something slightly different. They've had something to say this week. That's right. They had their first ever annual results, uh, and that was from their incorporation on 22nd of October 2019 to the end of last year. Though it's worth noting that, as you mentioned, they were actually launched in February 2020. So that's probably the more realistic period. Uh, but in that time, their NAV total return was about, uh, they were up about 14%, and that compared with a rise of 8% for their benchmark. Uh, the share price total return not quite so good, up about 7% as the discount uh, widened out to 6%. So it's still relatively early days for this one. It's a very focused portfolio again. They had 20 stocks uh, at launch or were initially held in the portfolio, and in fact, they've sold two of those over the period. So, as I said, it's very early days. It's probably one to watch. I mean, it's run by a chap called James Rosenwald, who's of Rising Sun Management. And as the name would suggest, I think they take, um, they're focused on Japanese smaller companies and take probably quite an activist approach. Yes, you have to say probably launching an investment trust in February 2020, probably not the best time to do it. But it's turned out okay in the end, as has been the story we'll talk about when we get to the end of this podcast. Those dark days seem a long way away at the moment. What about Vietnam Holdings? That's VNH, one of uh, a number of Vietnamese trusts. Let's talk about them. They had interim results here we're talking about. They did. They had interim results for the six months to the end of December uh, at a very strong period, actually. Their NAV was up 39%. Uh, Insure price terms not quite so impressive, up 25%. And there are a number of uh, holdings that performed well uh, and helped their performance in that time. And also the fact they increased their exposure to the banking sector also helped performance. And they've agreed a new fee with their investment manager, Dynam Capital. Uh, they removed the performance fee, which I think, as we've discussed in previous weeks, has been a real feature of the investment company sector now for some time. Uh, and they've put the fee on a, on a tiered fee structure. But the, the core themes for Vietnam Holding, they're very much focused on domestic consumption, industrialization, and urbanization. Okay, and they could be contrasted and compared, I guess, with the Vena Capital Vietnam Opportunity Fund, VOF, which has also had interim results for the same period. That's right, six months to the end of December. NAV total return numbers, not quite as impressive as Vietnam Holding. Uh, Vena Capital Vietnam Opportunity Fund, they were up 28% in that six month period. Uh, and that represented an underperformance of the VN index, which was up 36%. However, in share price total return terms, they're up 44%. And it's worth noting on this one, actually, that there's quite a large element of the portfolio uh, is invested in uh, unlisted equities, in, in private equity. And so one suspects that those valuations uh, probably might lag the market direction a little bit. Um, but certainly it was a strong period uh, as evidenced by the fact that an incentive fee of 31 million US dollars was accrued. I think there are now three Vietnamese uh, investment trusts in the uh, country specialist subsector. Am I right in saying that you've actually been to Vietnam with one of these uh, investment trusts that organises regular visits out there? Am I right about that, son? 
Do you know, I think I'm one of the few London-based brokers that haven't had that invitation, actually. I, don't, I have never made it to Vietnam. I'd love to go. Maybe not at this precise moment in time, but it's on the on the bucket list. Right. Well, please note, whoever's uh, managing this investment trust, Simon would like to pay a visit to uh, <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> okay, let's move on and talk about property. We've had some annual results from Impact Healthcare REIT, IHR. Very interesting trust, this one. And what have they had to say, Simon? So they had their annual results out for last year. Uh, and again, a good set of results. Their NAV per share was up about 2.6%, but their NAV total return was up about 8.5%. And that compares with a target of uh, 9% per annum. That's what they're trying to generate over the long term. So they made good progress. The portfolio was valued at about 400, just short of about 420 million at the end of the year. And they acquired 22 new properties during last year. But uh, unsurprisingly, perhaps 100% of the rent due for the year was collected. They paid dividends totaling 6.29p in respect of the year, and that was in line with their target and up just short of 2% from 2019. Uh, They do have a progressive dividend policy, and they're looking to pay 6.41p for 2021. And again, that will be up 1.9%. But yeah, you're right. It's an interesting uh, story, this one. Uh, It's a portfolio of over 100 care homes now. I think they talk about it in terms of beds, just uh, about 5,900 beds in that portfolio. And and the story has moved on from its launch when effectively it was just one tenant. Uh, They're now up to about 12. uh, And they've been quite progressive in terms of active management, but uh, not unimportant, clearly, given the times that we live in. They they disclose that by mid February, 100% of the residents in in their care homes had received their first dose uh, of the vaccine. And then by the 25th of March, 80% of residents had received their second dose. So I think we can all agree that that is good news. Indeed. Let's move on and talk about another interesting trust, a specialist trust. So this is something called Phoenix Spray Deutschland, PSDL. Phoenix Spray Deutschland. They've had some annual results. And this is an interesting one because I, I know a little bit about this one. They invest in German property and uh, they've run into a slight problem a little while ago with uh, some new rental rules in Germany or in Berlin in particular. Uh, So what's been the story there? Uh, Well, the story this week is that they announced their annual results for the year to the end of December and their EPRA NTA, which is the equivalent of the NAV, was up 7.3%. And in fact, their total return numbers were up 8.8%. So that was positive. And there's a lot of activities you would uh, expect at the underlying level in terms of sales. And it's worth noting, actually, that in terms of the condominium sales that they achieved during the year, that uh, actually worked out about a 19% premium to book values. In other words, they're managing to sell these condominiums at a higher price than they're actually valuing them at. But you're right, there has been an issue here. And my German pronunciation is going to let me down. But I think it's called Mittendeckel, which is basically a rent cap law that's kicked in. And it's worth saying that this is German uh, rental properties. It's very focused on the Berlin market, Berlin residential mid-market. And clearly this this issue with the rent cap laws has been ongoing for some time. I think they're in the final phase of this. There's going to be a a final legal ruling anticipating the first half of this year. uh, And one suspects that will have a bit of an impact on this investment company's share price. But in terms of the dividends, uh, they paid out or they declared seven and a half euro cents, so equivalent to 6.75p per share. uh, And that was in line with their previous year. And in fact, 
over 99% of rents were collected during 2020. Yes, I remember this. It's been an interesting story because a few years ago, I remember talking to some of the professionals who invest in investment trusts, and they were very excited about this one. They thought it was just too good to be true. Uh, and of course, it rather did turn out to be too good to be true. It's performed very, very strongly over a period until about, uh, well, 2018, 2019. Uh, then it's sold off sharply, obviously, last year, and now it's come sort of bouncing back. So uh, obviously, the people are becoming a little more confident about the outcome of that particular one. Let's move on and talk about um, the results from the two Brevin Howard trusts that we mentioned before, the hedge funds, BH Global and BH Macro. Uh, while they've been busy uh, arguing about fees, they've also obviously been uh, doing their normal day-to-day business and they both produced their annual results. And uh, how, in fact, did they do? Uh, very well is the short answer. So uh, BH Global, to start with, they had an NAV total return in sterling terms up about 22% uh, last year. BH Macro, in contrast, their sterling NAV was up 28%. And it's worth noting that they are obviously both part of the the Brevin Howard stable, but they are slightly different in terms of their underlying exposures. Uh, BH Global has a kind of broader range of strategies, including actually an investment in the the macro fund. But I think as time has gone on, they've looked to differentiate the two investment vehicles. But a very strong period uh, for them. It's always interesting with hedge funds, the amount of disclosure that you get. I would suggest Brevin Howard are actually not too bad and probably a lot better than they, they once were. But after a number of years of slightly different performance, um, they came good last year. Uh, let's mention next Pershing Square Holdings, which, as I said before, is the sort of big boy in the hedge fund sector of those that remains. It's uh, a very large trust by terms of assets. And it's also joined the FTSE 100 index, which is... Uh, Uh, obviously had an impact on supply and demand. But anyway, let's talk about their annual results. And uh, how did they do last year? Yeah, they had a very strong year, actually. Their NAV total return was up 70% uh, last year, and that compared with a rise of 18% for the S&P 500. A few different uh, moving parts on this one. Basically, they bought index credit default swaps uh, in February last year, which turned out to be a fantastic trade, obviously, as the as the market sold off thereafter. And in fact, what they did, they unwound that position and used the proceeds to reinvest in the markets as the markets recovered. So they, they played it quite well, I think it's fair to say. And that was obviously a big driver of performance, though they are still sit on quite a, a sizable discount, probably about 27% or so. And in fact, they repurchased shares of not too far off 290 million US dollars worth of shares last year, as well as paying a quarterly dividend. Um, There's also a bit of discussion in the results in terms of their SPAC that they're involved with. Uh, This is the Pershing Square Tontine Holdings. I think I pronounced that correctly. Um, They haven't actually made an investment uh, through that uh, or completed a transaction they were expecting that that would be completed in the first quarter of this year. That obviously hasn't happened. So we'll have to see how that one develops. Perhaps it might be worth just going back and just explaining again exactly what a SPAC is and why it's seen as controversial in some eyes. It stands for a Special Purchase Acquisition Company, I think, something like that. And basically, this is what we used to call in the old days a blind pool, is it not? Where you actually are investing in something, but you don't quite know what it is you're going to be investing in because that's at the discretion of the manager. And in this case, it's obviously uh, Pershing Square Holdings and the hedge fund manager, Bill Ackman, who's promising to make a deal of some sort, but we don't know what it is. And if you uh, buy into the SPAC, you're actually you know, backing his judgment. So what are your thoughts on SPACs, uh, Simon? 
Well, I mean, it's obviously been a feature of the US market. There's been a lot of discussion in the media about the, the, the rising number of SPACs, and you can see why they might prove uh, attractive to some. So effectively, they're looking for a, a private company to kind of reverse into these vehicles. Um, there's a bit of discussion about the, the, the fees involved with this, about the level of disclosure. Um, it's obviously not a feature of the UK market. But certainly when uh, we heard uh, Bill Ackman talk about this when Pershing Square Tontime was set up last summer, uh, I think it was over the top of my head, uh, and they seemed to be quite excited about the opportunities that it provided. And they obviously had a number of companies that they were looking at uh, doing a deal with effectively. So I think we'll have to see how that plays out. I mean, what I don't think can be ignored is the fact that Pershing Square have performed incredibly well last year. And in fact, performed very well in, in 2019 as well. They were up 58% uh, in 2019. So they've had these two stellar year of returns, and yet they still uh, sit out on a wide discount. And I suspect for most shareholders, they'll be more concerned about the discount rather than uh, any deals that they might be doing on the SPAC front, to be honest. Yes, I think it's fair to say, though, that they did very well in 2019 and 2020, but the previous three years, they didn't do so well. And I think that's, uh, I guess, one of the concerns that people have, which is that it has proved to be quite a, a volatile animal. Obviously done spectacularly well last year, I think we have to say. That trade, as it were, was described as the trade of the decade by uh, one uh, investment analyst, I recall. Obviously, sort of betting against the market in February and then buying it back in April was, was just about the perfect way to play the events last year. And I know that, uh, that if you read the annual report, which I did do, um, or the annual results announcement, there is a lot about how they want to bring the discount in. And they point, make lots of good points about how, you know, Ackman and his colleagues they actually own a very large chunk of the trust, which is meant to be good for alignment of interest. And they've uh, bought back a lot of shares and so on. But it, uh, the discount has remained, as you say, fairly stubbornly wide. What has been the trend in the discount uh, over the last, uh, shall we say, three, four, five years? Over that period of time, it will have narrowed in. But at the moment, as I said, it's about 27%. That compares with an average over the previous 12 months of 29%. So it's a little bit tighter, but not materially so. So I, I think the discount is a real frustration for Bill Ackman and the, the team at Pershing Square uh, Capital Management, not least because of the way it's performed over the previous few years. But you're right, they were derated on the back of that difficult period uh, of three years between 2015 and 2017. The number of high-profile investments didn't work out for them during that time. Uh, and really, that discount is a reflection of that. I think the other issue as well is is perhaps one of disclosure. And it's a, it's, it, you know, it's a difficulty because obviously people want to know what they're getting with Pershing Square in terms of the, the portfolio at any one period of time. But Bill Ackman, as, as most H1 managers, activist investors, are quite protective over the way the portfolio is set up. You do get disclosure, but there's normally a bit of a time lag. So I think that's a difficulty as well. So you have to kind of buy bill, basically, buy the approach, which, uh, you know, as you say, over the long term has had its ups and downs. Okay, so let's move on finally then in terms of results to uh, City Merchants High Yield, CMHY, uh, City Merchants High Yield, and they've had some annual results as well. Yep, uh, they had annual results to the end of December. Their NAV total return was up about 7%, and that compared with 3% for its benchmark, uh, which is a bond high-yield index benchmark. And in fact, the average return of the uh, Investment Association Sterling Strategic Bond Sector, which was also up about 6%. So they outperformed on both measures. They increased their exposure over the year. They, they started off at the start of 2020, with a little bit of cash, about 4% cash, and ended it geared at about 5%. Uh, 
Uh, they paid dividends of, of 10p, and that was in line with 2019. In fact, I think they've been running with a 10p dividend for a number of years now. And obviously, the big news with this one actually happened at the start of last month, the start of March, uh, when they announced proposals to merge with Invesco Enhanced uh, Income. And I think we discussed that uh, a few weeks ago. And as and when that is successful, uh, they will look to pay an annual dividend target of 11p so they'll increase it and that vehicle will be called the Invesco Bond Income Plus but obviously that's subject to shareholder approval and we'll see uh, as and when the timetable of that one unfolds. Very good so that brings us to the end of the uh, announcements and news this week but we might just quickly have a look back at the year since we started this podcast uh, as I said in the first week of April last year just after the market bottomed out in 23rd of March, I think it was, uh, last year. We might just have a quick look back at that. I should say that uh, I worked out that uh, since then, Simon, you and I, we have mouthed 350,000 words about investment trusts in this period, (laughs) which is quite a staggering figure, really. It just goes to show how interesting the sector is, though, that we never seem to run out of things to talk about. There's always something going on in investment trusts. That's the great advantage over other types of investment or many other types of investment. There's always something going on in the investment trust world to talk about uh, and something to uh, makes it much easier to monitor what you own. And it's been great fun doing that. I'm still hoping to catch you out on one or two more things next year, but uh, we will be carrying on with this podcast. And uh, let's look back then at uh, what's happened. I mean, I don't recall us saying when we recorded the first podcast that we should be filling our boots with almost anything, which basically would have been the right thing to do if you had any money left, of course, having watched your portfolio tumble in the weeks before. But I mean, it has been a most remarkable recovery from the low points of at that point. No, I think that's absolutely right. You know, to be slightly facetious, if you manage to catch the falling knife perfectly, uh, and bearing in mind it was the 23rd of March last year that we saw the FTSE 100 dip below the 5,000 level, if you managed to catch the knife at that stage, um, then you would be sitting uh, very pretty right now. I mean, in many respects from that low, it's been quite difficult to lose money. We've only seen a handful, six, I think, investment companies in negative territory, whereas um, I think there are probably about 30, 40 names have actually more than doubled your money during that time. But obviously, hindsight is a wonderful thing. It's worth noting that those companies that have done particularly well, those investment companies that have done particularly well over the last 12 months, um, there's some interesting names on the list, some that you'd expect to see and some perhaps slightly more unusual. So uh, as we've discussed in weeks gone by, uh, a very strong year for Bailey Gifford and and names such as Pacific Horizon, and this is in share price total return terms, um, up over 206% since that low of March 23rd last year. Also in the Bailey Gifford stable, you've got names such as Scottish Mortgage, Bailey Gifford US Growth, uh, and those two funds are up 149%, 146%, so fantastic returns. But actually, it's been quite good for UK small cap funds as well. So one of the strongest performers, Mighton UK Microcap, up 245% in that time, and River Mercantile UK Microcap up 198%. So they were massively derated, it's fair to say, back in March last year. But from that point, they performed very, very well. And also in the resources sector as well. So City Natural Resources up nearly 200%. BlackRock World Mining up 173%. uh, And the BlackRock Energy and Resources Income up 170%. So really fantastic returns. On the not-so-good list, well, it's a bit of a rum selection, to be honest. Um, You know, some problem children. uh, Jay-Z, Capital Partners down 48%. Amadeo Air 4 Plus, Aircraft Leasing 
unsurprisingly, they're in negative territory. But uh, when you look down the uh, the laggards list, there's there's a quite a few property companies as perhaps we might expect. So Standard Life Investment Property Income, not in negative territory, but just up seven percent over that twelve month period. Ground rents income up ten percent, and and as mentioned, really from the lows, that's a relatively modest return compared with most of their peers. Yes, and of course it is fair to say that uh, what happened during the market sell-off, is, which is uh, does tend to happen, is that the in some cases the discounts widened dramatically, or at least the the formally reported discounts widened dramatically, but they didn't last there very long, and uh, that was more a function of how the markets behaved during these crises. It's very hard to get a price, if you like, and uh, the, nobody's rushing out to offer you shares at a at a fair value, if you like, uh, and that passed pretty quickly. I mean, looking back on it, though, Simon, what do you think? I mean, obviously, the thing to do, most people who just did nothing, it turned out to be a pretty good strategy, often is during these market uh, crises. If you'd sat there from, you know, January and you took the losses or you just watched your portfolio decline in value, but you hung on. Uh, and by the end of the year, if you had a kind of reasonably diversified portfolio, you would have still have been ahead. You might have wondered what all the fuss is about. There is a sort of lesson there, I think, is there not, for those who have not been through these kind of crises before. Yeah, don't panic, I think is always a good set of advice. I'm always wary as a broker advising people not to do anything because obviously brokers tend to get remunerated on, on the level of transactions. <laughs> so inertia is perhaps not the best policy uh, from a purely selfish point of view. But um, obviously what you say uh, does have a, a ring of truth about it. I think one of the things that we did discuss back uh, in early April last year, and I, I did go back and listen to that first podcast, we, we sounded considerably younger uh, it's fair to say, uh, we talked about dividends and dividend certainty. The perhaps investment trust companies would come into their own in providing greater dividend certainty. And I think we talked about the AIC dividend heroes and what might happen. And actually, although we're obviously very careful to make predictions on this, I think what we said was broadly correct, that most investment trust companies would be minded to preserve their dividend records, which which has undoubtedly come to pass. And the fact that they could use revenue reserves to support those dividends would be a key attraction. And actually, there's been a quite interesting report uh, that's been released recently from the Link Group looking at the investment trust company sector and the amount of dividends uh, paid out overall. And they made the point that actually uh, it was an increase uh, in 2020, year on year from 2019. And there aren't, there aren't that many sectors of the UK marketplace that can say that. So I think in, in that regard, at least we were correct. Yes, I think that's a fair point. I think you did make that point very clearly. And uh, it has been, you know, much trumpeted as one of the strengths of the investment trust sector, the ability to use reserves to uh, sustain dividends. But it's one thing to uh, to talk about it, another thing actually to see it happen. And uh, I think we have seen that. Happen. We've seen the evidence that uh, boards have been willing in many cases, not all, we've lost one or two of the dividend heroes in the course of the year, uh, who are perhaps overstretched. But uh, in general terms, you're absolutely right. That uh, much vaunted advantage of investment trust has been borne out by the way that the dividends have been maintained and as you say actually increased in in many cases so here we are we're back uh, at the end of the first quarter 2021 i mean some people have a question they say well here we are we've been through this pandemic which has had some awful and dramatic effects which are still ongoing in terms of lockdown in many places you know the day that the market bottomed was the day that we went into the first lockdown or the first lockdown was announced which is kind of ironic in a way but here we are at the end of the first quarter 2021 and on average the world's stock markets are higher than they were before the pandemic so you know, i think i saw a statistic that the you know developed markets as a group are 20% higher than they were at the at the end of 2019 
uh, which is quite a remarkable statistic. I mean, can, if you like, the equity universe be uh, actually more valuable now uh, following the pandemic than it was before? I think that's a question we might want to ponder as the as the years go by. Uh, it's a very interesting one. Obviously, interest rates have fallen a lot and are now beginning to edge back up again, and that may have been a factor in that. But it is a very interesting state of affairs that we have as we look forward from here. Do you have any uh, sort of final thoughts you want to offer about uh, how investment trusts might do this year? There's obviously questions about the discount. Do you think we're going to see more corporate activity, more fundraising, all the things we've talked about? What do you think? I mean, I guess it's a question of how set fair the barometer is. No, I think that's right. Look, I think we're going to see more fundraising. I think that there's clearly appetite particularly for those more specialist asset classes that offer attractive levels of yield. Uh, obviously, we spent quite a lot of time talking about infrastructure and renewable energy infrastructure. I don't think the attractions of those asset classes are going to disappear. Um, discounts, uh, an interesting one to watch, as discussed at the start of this podcast, they have widened out uh, a little bit this year. And I think there is a, a greater onus on those investment trust companies that were quite happy to issue shares merrily when they enjoyed premium ratings to kind of protect shareholders on the, on the other side when they do slip out to discounts. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if, if, if a number of those step up to the plate. But also, you know, corporate activity, there's always corporate activity in the investment trust sector for various reasons. Uh, it might be through underperformance, it might be through managers retiring. And I think investment managers are always very interested in being involved in investment trust companies. I think they see them as very attractive vehicles, very attractive shop windows for what they do. Um, and so I think there's always a demand for uh, investment managers that perhaps we haven't seen uh, in the marketplace at the moment, getting their hands on a, on a UK listed investment trust company. So, yes, it's going to be another busy year, I think, for investment trust companies. I think that's the, the safest prediction I can make. Indeed. Let's hope that is the case. I'm sure it will be. And uh, Simon, I'd like to thank you for all your many words over the last uh, 12 months. I think you may have had slightly more than your 50% share of the 350,000 because I have the easier job here. And uh, I'm looking forward to catching out on something next year at some point in the next 12 months, if I can. I have to say I've had it very difficult to catch you out so far, but uh, I'm going to keep trying. And uh, we're going to look forward to uh, many more weeks of this uh, podcast. And thank you all, those of you who are listening, for supporting us and for listening to us every week. And uh, we're very, very grateful to you for that. So with that, I'll say uh, goodbye. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. The website also has details of how to join the Moneymakers Circle, our premium content subscription service, offering more interviews, portfolio updates, and market commentary. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.